thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So welcome to this continuation of our Bible study on the book of Genesis. Last week we've spent some time trying to understand what were the motivations that led Cain to uh, kill Abel. What caused him to take his brother out in the field and murder him. And we essentially followed a moral reading of that uh, section of scripture, of section of chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. Because we wanted to highlight a number of important elements for us. Number one, the the structure of temptation. How does temptation come about? We talked about the fact that the devil is always there to whisper in our ears. We spoke about the different voices, the voice of the devil, the voice of the angel, our guardian angel, and how to distinguish between them. And we've talked about our own voice and the voice of God, the four voices that can speak to us. And we've said that it is important for us to make sure that we spend time in prayer so that we can be used to the voice of our guardian angel. And we also said that angelic being, whether demonic or uh, angelic in the spiritual sense, communicate to us through images. And therefore the uh, imagination, the faculty of the imagination, must be nurtured and must be guarded Uh, especially with our children, so that we make sure that uh, imagination is filled with good images, beautiful images, so that our guardian angel may be able to effectively communicate with us, and we will um, avoid or exclude bad images or images which are um, horrific, uh, therefore particularly horror movies. We've talked about all of this as the way in which Cain was led to commit that act of killing his brother. But we have not yet really fully understood why he wanted to kill him in the first place. In other words, last week's study explained the mechanism, talked about what what happens when one thinks about committing a sin, but it didn't really touch upon a basic fact. What was it that led Cain to kill Abel? Fundamentally, As things stand right now, we can feel close to Abel. We understand where he comes from. But as far as Cain is concerned, he looks like the stranger because we don't understand his motivation. Therefore, we might be tempted to think that if we were to face a situation like his, we would not not do what he did. Uh, For instance, when the apostles betrayed our Lord, we might be tempted to think that if we were in their shoes, we would have done better. Perhaps we would, but there may also be a uh, risk that we would not do better right now, today in our life. And how can we tell unless we truly understand the makeup of that sin? And that's what we want to do today. However, in order to be able to do that, in order to achieve this, we need to take a detour. This detour may seem initially strange or really not related to the subject at hand, but hopefully as uh, we go through this walk, you'll get to see that it has everything to do with Cain and Abel and the reason why Cain ended up killing Abel. And that detour is a sort of um, short study in the work of a great uh, Christian thinker whose name is uh, René Girard. I suppose the English um, pronunciation might be something like René Girard, or René uh, Girard. 
Um, yeah. um, this is um, he's a uh, he's a man, not a woman, because uh, Rene can go both ways, or Rini and Rene, I suppose, in English. But in French, it's all the same. It's Rene. But uh, this man uh, started his career as a um, student of literature. He was mainly interested initially by some local work done in the 15th century in Avignon in France, and then slowly but surely started to study um, the work of the masters from a literary point of view. And eventually he became intrigued by the problem of violence. Why is there violence in the world? Why do we commit crimes? And he saw a link between violence and mythology and started studying mythology as well. And as a result of all the study, he came up with a framework or a theory that explains much about our world in a consistent fashion. And this is what we're going to cover today. You will find it, I hope, very illuminating, not only for Cain and Abel, but also for the Gospels and for many events that happen today in our world. We will begin this study by talking about one rather simple concept uh, with uh, maybe a little bit of a difficult word, and that concept is mimetic desire. Mimetic, spelled M-I-M-E-T-I-C, mimetic. Uh, this word is, has the same root in Latin as the word imitate. Both of them have the exact same root, and uh, mimetic, therefore, is talking about imitation, to imitate. Desire, mimetic desire. The notion, therefore, is that we do not have desires of our own, but typically tend to borrow our desires from others. What do we mean by that? What do we mean to borrow our desires from others? Well, think about how we learn when we're children. Think about the stuff that we like even today. Our desire for a certain object, be it a car, coffee maker, clothing, whatever, whatever uh, you might fancy, that desire for this object is always provoked by the desire of another person. I do not mean by that, that it's the, provoked by the desire that we may have for another person. I mean that the reason why we end up desiring something, an object, is in imitation of a behavior of another person, which in this context we will call the model or the mediator. Um, this might seem a little bit abstract, but before I give you an example, let's hone on three important terms. The subject. So if you're taking notes, you might want to sort of write uh, the subject um, on, um, you know, on, on the paper, leave some space above it, leave maybe a couple of three or four lines above it, and write the subject. And now go up, and to the left of the subject, write object. So go maybe two lines up, and then to the left of the subject, write object. And then on the same line we wrote object, but to the right of object, and to the right of the subject, you write uh, mediator. And now you relate all these three by line, so you end up with a triangle. And the uh, vertices of the triangle consist of the subject, which is on the bottom of the triangle, on the pointy end of the triangle, and the object and the mediator are on either side of the base of the triangle. So this is a triangle relationship. One more thing I need to say about object. If you hear me speak of object, especially in the context of humans, if I were to say... Um, this, you know, the, the, the woman was the object of his desire. What I mean here, I, I use those terms in the anthropological sense, where an object is anything that is apart from me. It has something to do with objective reality. It's something that is apart from my own self. An object is something that exists apart from me. And a subject is anything that is subjective, anything that is related to me. So, um, in that case, therefore, if you hear me say that the woman is the object of his desire, you need to understand it in that context. It, she is the focus point. She is the, the, the terminal of, or the, the, the end point of the desire. And that's all that I mean by those terms. They have, as you can see, very specific 
meaning within the realm of anthropology. For those of you who may not be familiar with that term, anthropology, anthropos, man, logi, logic, the logic of man, meaning the study of the nature of man. Uh, put differently, anthropology is that branch of the social sciences that is interested by this one question, what is man? And uh, you might recall that John Paul II had a PhD in anthropology, and his book on uh, the, uh, uh, the theology of the body is uh, effectively an essay in anthropology, or at least borrows quite a bit, borrows heavily from the anthropological field. So man here, the definition of what man is at the essence of this whole conversation we're talking about today with the mimetic desires. So let's go back to what I said earlier. Our desires are learned by imitation. We imitate somebody. Let me give you an example. Or let me ask you a question, rather. Why is it that when you watch commercials, you tend to see a maybe um, six feet six foot, five inch tall guy who's obviously a basketball player standing there holding a diaper. Uh, obviously the diaper is maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but maybe he may be holding a bottle of water or Snickers or a t-shirt or something else. The object that the, uh, this particular commercial is highlighting is whatever he's holding, the t-shirt, the bottle of water, etc., the purpose of this commercial is to incite us, or at least a portion of us, to go out and buy the thing. Why is it that the commercial has that man standing there and talking about the object? If, in fact, our desires were only the byproduct of a rational process by which we examine the thing and decide whether we want it or not, based maybe on its, you know, intrinsic merits, then if that's how we worked, why did the marketeers decided to stick a man in that commercial? And the reason is very simple, because they do understand very well how the mimetic desire works. There is a subject, us, watching the commercial, there is an object, whatever the object may be, bottle of water, let's say, in this particular case. And then there is the model, the mediator, the basketball player, who's supposed to be some, a star, someone who is admired by a group of the population. Therefore, you can tell right away that this commercial is targeted to a specific age bracket, maybe even a specific gender. I don't know if uh, boys are more interested in basketball than girls. It may or may not be the case, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is that whoever is interested by basketball would be looking at this guy, presumably a well-known uh, player in basketball, as their mediator. And because he stands there looking as though he desires that object, the intrinsic value that we might ascribe to the object has suddenly been increased because he wants it. And because he wants it, we then, by imitation, would want it as well. So marketeers know that very, very well, and that's why most of the commercials work with that paradigm. There's always, the, what the, what the, the purpose of a, of a commercial is always to build up an image of the mediator, the image of the model, and make us understand that this model really likes whatever object is being sold, so that we, by imitation, go out and then by it. Fairly uh, basic com concept, but extremely rich. Let's see why. First of all, Girard points out that all desire is a desire to be. Essentially, what that means is that happiness, our happiness, doesn't stem from an accumulation of things. Uh, I don't think we need any theory to understand that. Most of us, especially living here in California, realize this. We, our homes are full of stuff, and in fact, that stuff ends up being a headache, and we're always happy to get rid of it. Um, so, the object that we were pursuing is not the thing that makes us happy. What makes us happy is an increase in a sense of being. Um, that is a very profound insight, and it is also borne out through Scripture, because when God, when Moses asked God in the burning bush, 
for his name, the Lord says, I am the one who is, meaning I am being. And that's what God is. God is, and we are not. So we have contingent being, and by this we mean that we exist insofar that God keeps us in existence. Let me repeat that. God is. God um, is the only one that is. We have contingent being. And by this we mean that we exist insofar as God wills us to remain in existence. If He were to will that we should not exist, then we would cease to exist. We do not have the absolute principle of our existence in ourselves. It is in God. That's why we are an image of God and not God's ourselves. That's a very profound um, and important element. Yet, what we tend to do when we go back to this mimetic desire we're talking about is that we ascribe more being, more existence, if you will, to the model, to the mediator. Somehow he exists more than we do. Here's an example. Suppose you had standing next to me right now two guys. One who had $100,000 and one who had $10 billion. For whatever reason, we will tend to think that the one with the $10 billion has a weightier word. We would listen to what he says more attentively than the one who has $100,000. And we tend to say that his word is weighty. We give it weight. And that is our indication that he somehow has more being to himself than the one with $100,000. Yet, if you really think about it, fundamentally, uh, neither of them has more existence than the other because both of them are contingent beings. But because we took that one to be our model, because our desire is channeled towards him and our and our, our intention is to imitate him, we ascribe to him, we give him more weight than he really has. Another good example for the, for the, for the youth would be popular kids. Uh, in a sense, popular kids in schools are to be really pitied because what happens is that they are conceived to be the model to imitate and therefore the other uh, students ascribe to them more existence than they really have. The problem is that for these popular kids, in order for them to remain popular, they must be able to live up to the um, live up to the expectation of all those who look up to them. In other words, they need to live up to that expectation that they're happier, that they're better, that they're maybe um, you know really good looking, that uh, they are successful. They need to be able to project this image, and it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of work, particularly when fundamentally they really have no more existence than anybody else. In fact, in some instances, they, they are really shallow people. So how can they do that? Well, they really cannot do that on their own, and so what ends up happening is that a sense of isolation, a sense of loneliness sets in, which typically can lead to uh, depressive behavior or dysfunctional behavior. We see that among the stars. Why is it we have these guys who are making millions of dollars, who so many people listen to their music or albums or songs or whatever, and many people look at them as and, and, and idol, you know, idolize them and want their autograph and signatures? And why is it that these people end up doing drugs and messing up their lives and, and really ending up in a situation that is dysfunctional? Because of what I just described to you. When we take somebody and make him as our model, and when he doesn't have substantially what it takes to be the model, then he is going to fail sooner or later. And if nothing else, loneliness will eat at him because he obviously cannot disclose his secret, his weaknesses to others. He cannot say, guys, I'm just like you. Uh, stop idolizing me. He would then lose everything he is clinging to. So that particular model this triangle between the subject, the object, and the, the mediator explains quite a bit of the dysfunctional behavior that we might see out there. Another good, so here's another example that you might want to think about. If, let's say, you have a man that loves a woman, and say there is another man who admires this man, who takes him for his idol, then one of two things might happen. The subject that admires the mediator, in other words, the subject that looks up to the mediator, and would like to imitate the mediator, may do one of two things. He might want to, he actually may do one of three things. 
he may want to go out and find a woman like the one that the mediator has. In this case, he's really inspired by a form of jealousy, and he just wants to have something similar. He wants to sort of uh, reproduce the situation that the mediator has. And uh, that might lead uh, this particular person to actually meet a woman and marry her and be happy and realize that really he doesn't need a mediator. And so the relationship between him and the mediator may be severed, and that's that. Option number two, he may enter into competition with the mediator. He may seek the same woman. He may try to get the same woman. Not because she's any better than any other woman, but simply because she's the object of the desire of the mediator, therefore her own intrinsic value, her existence, so to speak, is increased in the eyes of the subject because the mediator is looking to her. If the mediator is saying, this woman makes me happy, and if in the eyes of the subject the mediator has intrinsically more existential values than he does, the subject will conclude that the reason why the mediator has more existential value is because of the 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 whatever the woman is giving to him. Therefore, she is the source of the happiness of the mediator, and hence he will go after her. And he will want to take her away from the mediator. And so many novels and so many dramas have been written about this sort of triangular relationship between two men and a woman, or two women and a man, etc., etc. Okay, that's the second thing that might happen. Now, the third thing that might happen is when the subject decides to forego the object altogether. Or, put it differently, the subject decides to collapse the object and the mediator. The mediator becomes also the object of his quest. They are now rolled up in one. And when that, when that happens, you end up, for instance, in a situation of, say, homosexuality. So what is homosexuality? It is a particular case of mimetic desire where the subject presumably in relationship to his father, has never really learned to grow up and detached and be able to really focus on the object. His focus has always been intensely on his father and he has never been able to detach himself from this and therefore he goes out and finds substitutes for his dad. That obviously simplifying, there are more complicated factors to get into the picture, but the intent here is that we see that all three patterns I just described, whether one leading to a normal relationship between a man and woman, a second leading to a competition between two men over one woman, and a third leading to a sort of a homosexual relationship, all three of them are variations over this mimetic desire described in this triangle. Alright? So, you could see, therefore, that this tri triangular relationship is extremely powerful and it really forms the basis for most of the relationships we have out there. And a proper understanding of it could have significant impact in the fields of sociology, psychology, in the fields of uh, communication, etc., etc. And that is why I think it's important for Catholics to really get to know the mimetic uh, theory the theory of, uh, of uh, Girard and, and to understand it because it can shed quite a bit of light on our behavior. Now you might be wondering, what's it got to do with Cain and Abel? But we're going to get to it, so bear with me. Um, other examples I didn't give you is, let's say, a subject that devaluates himself so completely and ascribes almost absolute existential value to the model and you end up in a situation we call of you know a sadomasochist relationship where uh, the subject is willing to um, live in pain provided that that pain is inflicted by the mediator because that means that the mediator in inflicting pain over the subject is um, is uh, getting something out of it essentially the subject becomes the source of the existential happiness of the mediator and that in turn gives the subject um, a sort of a very um, deformed and um, deviant sense of happiness. And that's what happens in the masochist, in the sadomasochist relationship. Again, another variation over the same principle um, that we see between mediator, subject, and object. I hope that by now you have at least a glimpse to what I'm talking about. Uh, as a reference, you may wish to read the book titled Deceit, Desire, and a Novel. Uh, Deceit, Desire, and a Novel, published in 1961 by Girard. Yeah, 1961. This is how old the stuff is, and uh, still most people don't really know about. 
All right, at the end of this section, therefore, we've talked about the mimetic desire. We've said that imitation, we really learn by imitation. Oh, a really good example I want to give you before I move on, because it really highlights or uh, exemplifies this very clearly. Uh, do the following experiment if you have toddlers around you. Have them playing in a room. So you have four toddlers playing in a room. And then walk into the room with four balloons. You know, the ones, the simple balloons that you blow up. Uh, and let's say they're all... Uh, pink balloons or yellow balloons. The, same, the, the, the important thing is that the balloons need to be absolutely similar. There are nothing to distinguish one balloon from the other. Same color, same size, same shape. And drop all four balloons on the floor. You might see the toddlers, let's say you have four toddlers, you might see each one of them going and grabbing a balloon. And they will be happy to play with the balloons because all four balloons are similar. Now walk back in after they played with the balloon. Pick one of those balloons randomly. doesn't matter which one. Just pick one of them hold it up, look at it, and then say something, oh, nice balloon, very nice balloon, and play with it and look very, very happy, and then drop the balloon, walk out, and watch Third World War begin. They're all going to fight for that same, for that one balloon, even though intrinsically this balloon has no, there's nothing different about it than the three other ones, but because you stepped in, you grabbed that balloon, you intrinsically gave it more value than it really has. And by imitation, because you're the model, the toddlers will want to imitate you and will go after this balloon. They will think that somehow the balloon, this particular balloon has something special about it and makes you happy, therefore it will make them happy. Children are very, very strong in imitation. And uh, that's why... Uh, this is, um, um, you know, this is how they learn. This is the mechanism to learn to, for them to learn. And no, notice, by the way, that mimetic desire, and I want to make that clear, I'm not saying mimetic desire is a bad thing. I'm just saying this is how we learn, and we end up in these relationships, and if we're not careful and we don't know how to regulate this, we can end in trouble. All right. So we talked now about the mimetic desire and how it works. Let's move on to the next aspect. And here it is. So the first principle we said was that mimetic desire, we learn by imitation, right? Mimetic desire, we learn by imitation. All right. The second one is that mimetic desire is contagious. Now, what do we mean by that? If you have a model that goes out and is somehow advocating an object, and if that particular model has a large following, everybody in that group or a good portion of folks in that group would want to imitate him. How do we know that? Well, think of the, about the phenomena called a fad. What is a fad? Somebody starts something in fashion, let's say, uh, and you have a whole bunch of imitators. And the reason why they're imitating it because they all think that somehow they'll be happier if they did what the model did. But not, not only that, others who see them doing it will then be enticed to do it. Because in their thinking, they'll say that if these people are doing it and so many people are doing it, it must be true. So they go ahead and do it as well. Right? So the, the, the Piper syndrome, if you will. Right? The model is the Piper playing the pipe and we're all the rats following him, and following him to the beach. And then why? Because every one of them hear the same song, and the song attracts us, but really what we're after is not the song or the music, but the piper. That's the difference between the rats and us. We see the piper as our model, and we follow him wherever he goes. And that's how fad are born. They never last very long, but they last long enough. And I'm talking about a fad, F-A-D, right? Fad. Everybody knows what that is. All right. Now, Let's talk about a mob. What's the difference between a mob and a crowd? In both instances, you have a group of people, typically a large group of people out there. And, and so what, what, you know, how can we tell one from the other? Why is that one different from the other? Well, what is a mob? A mob is a crowd with an intensified mimetic desire. That's all. Effectively, a mob is a crowd where the, the contagion of the mimetic desire 
has go, has has now gone uh, increased in, if you will, the speed. It's like suddenly somebody does something. Say you have a, uh, people walking and uh, demonstrating peacefully about something, and someone throws a rock and breaks a store and starts vandalizing it. If that is to spread, you're going to get a mob. What, what is spreading? The mimetic desire. He does it. He acts as the mediator. Everybody imitates, imitates him. And then the crowd turns into a mob. And oftentimes people wonder, why is it that a mob turns into a crowd? Well, and it seems really... Uh, I'm sorry, what is the... Um, yeah, why does the crowd turns into a mob? And it mystifies people. Well, there is no rhyme or reason to it in any of the objects that you're seeking. The rhyme and reason exists in the mimetic desire. If it, if it um, flares, you're going to get a crowd. Uh, you're going to get a mob. So if the conditions are right, if there is anger, if there is resentment, if there is a crowd that is um, walking with a or sort of stepping on a bed of resentment and anger, it will take one person to act as the role model for that to channel the violence out for the crowd to turn into a mob. So, what tends to happen as well, is if a crowd has the desire for the same object, or So then the, the, uh, the important thing is to understand that what makes a crowd into a mob is when the mob, the crowd is sharing an object and the object is taken away from them and there's, or there isn't enough for them. Scarcity of the object, for instance, or uh, simply the uniqueness of the object or something very spe- specific of the object may turn them into a mob and either they may go about destroying things around them or in ancient civilization what would end up happening is that they would turn against each other meaning that you would end up with a social unrest within the society. They wanted to share the same object. Now, since the object is gone, they need, in order to restore the peace within their society, they need to channel this mimetic desire towards something, and typically they need to find a common enemy. Uh, in Arabic, there is a very interesting proverb that says, I am against my brother, but me and my brother are against the foreigner. And that really highlights the, the principle that we're describing here. And that is, what is important is to find a victim on which we can impute all the reasons for the social disruption. So, for instance, um, say there is a plague, say there is a, a contagious disease going through a town... Uh, and there is this one woman who seems, uh, is uh, the only woman with red hair, and she's fine, she's healthy. Uh, the tendency might be to say, she's the witch. She's a witch, and she's the one who caused all this to happen, burn her. And uh, that type of behavior we've seen in the past is explained, therefore, by the fact that a mimetic desire that has now become contagious. So in the case of a violent within society, everybody has a really ardent desire to recover health. It's a common object. Unfortunately, that common object is taken away from them. They don't have it, yet the mimetic desire is still there and very strong and turns to violence. The violence can be channeled against each other, for instance, looking for scarcity resources or trying to maybe do certain things that you think might improve your health that others may want to do, and you know that the end result is going to be the destruction of your entire society, or it might be to find somebody that you can blame and that you could offer as a sacrifice, and that act will then bring back peace to the entire community. Uh, we see it, for instance, in the works of uh, uh, Sophocles, who wrote uh, Oedipus Rex. In Oedipus Rex, Oedipus is, uh, was taken away from his parents when he was young. He comes back to the town, and he ends up killing his father and marrying his mother, not knowing that these people are his father and his mother. He didn't do it on purpose, but when he does that, the, um, the, the, the city is plagued. There's a plague that hits the city, and people are falling sick. And so now Oedipus feels that he's the one responsible for this. Why? Because he has done something that puts him outside the norm. 
his action of actually marrying his mother puts him outside the norm. And as a result, he offers himself as a sacrificial victim. He plucks his eye out. And when he does that, according to Sophocles, peace returns to the city. So you can say this, this sort of um, behavior where the mimetic desire that has become contagious erupts into violence. In order to stem the violence, you find a victim, you sacrifice the victim, and the peace comes back. The high priest in the, John, I believe, chapter 16, sums it up very well. He said, It is far more expedient that one man perish than the whole nation, or that one man dies than the whole nation perish. It is more expedient than one man dies and the whole nation perish. He was obviously talking about Jesus. In his case, how did he see it? The words and acts of Jesus were threatening to divide the Jewish community into two camps, the followers of Jesus and those who opposed him. And that would degenerate them into the, the, the deadliest form of violence, fratricide violence, when brothers are fighting amongst each other. What he was saying, basically, is in order to avoid that, it would be far better that we can turn the whole community against Jesus. He becomes the scapegoat, and when he dies, peace is restored. And, and in one sense, this is exactly what happened. The crowd was incited against him. Why? Because he's different. He has something that no one else has. Everybody wants what he has, but no one can get it. So therefore, now all the crowd is united against him, and they all scream, crucify him. That explains why that same crowd that weeks ago, a week ago, in Hosanna Sunday, was receiving him as a king, has turned against him and turned him into a sacrificial victim. Because fundamentally, between a sacrificial victim and a king, there is nothing more than the thin layer of the coin. They are the opposite faces of the same coin. Today, if somebody sneezes, it must be President Bush's fault. He becomes the scapegoat, even though he was the most powerful man, the president. And, that ends up, and typically this is what happens. As a matter of fact, Jihad points out there is one society where when they pick a victim, they spend three days, they'll give this victim, um, they allow this victim to play king for three days. During those three days, he can get whatever he wants, and after that he's sacrificed. Well, if it so happens that there is a delay for whatever reason in the sacrifice, and if the victim is, has sufficient um, presence and charisma, the victim can turn this to his own advantage, and then he become the king. There is really very little difference between the king and the victim at that point. It's just that they are at opposing poles of the mimetic desire. You can flip from being the king one day to the victim the other. And in the case of Jesus, they had tried many, many times to turn him into a king, and he always had uh, escaped that. Jia uh, uh, points out that the... This behavior, the lo looking for a sacrificial victim as a solution for social unrest, is the genesis for archaic religion, or ritual sacrifice, as the repetition of the original event. Why? Because the sacrifice needs to be constantly repeated in order for the peace to remain. And that's why you need to find substitute uh, victims as you sacrifice them in order to keep the peace. And... At the same time that you find a, a victim, you're going to establish a set of taboos. You will not eat this, you will not do that, you will behave this way, not that way, so that you can avoid that, uh, uh, the violence that had hit the whole, um, the whole society. In our modern terms, consider, for instance, today the financial crisis, you see that we look at the same time for scapegoats, people to blame for it, make them pay, and we also look for regulations how to make sure that it doesn't happen again, where these, were, these are your sacrificial victims and your taboos in a financial context. So, at, at the, at the, essentially, the elaboration of the rights and the taboos is a kind of empirical knowledge about violence. It's a way of people saying, we know what violence can do. In order to stem violence, we're going to make sure we put these things in place, the sacrificial process and the taboos to make sure that violence comes, doesn't come back and bite us as a society. And at the heart of this mechanism, therefore, is the lynching pr perspective. The lynching mob tells a lie by accusing someone of committing a crime he didn't do. They also ascribe to the dead victim powers they never had, and then, thus, behind every myth of gods, there lies a murder and a tomb. And these words are from Jihad. So what does that mean? It means that, he, let, let's consider the following myth. It's in, uh, uh, 
uh, Indian myth, and it's, uh, it sounds very cute. And it speaks of, this, uh, of how the uh, lilies of the water were born, these beautiful flowers that float on the, on the surface of the river. How were they born? Where the, the tale that is told is that this beautiful woman came from the stars and lived among men in their village. But she was um, unable to live with them, and one day decided to leave the village, and she went into the river and became one with the river, and her tears of goodbye that she left behind formed those lilies of the river, the beautiful flowers that thought to be the tears of this woman who came from the stars, this mysterious creature, and decided to leave these uh, people alone and go live in the river. Some folks who are really taken by uh, the UFO phenomenon will interpret this mean to mean that this woman obviously was an extraterrestrial. Well, maybe so, but there may be a less poetic interpretation according to the Girardian system, and that is this woman, probably this woman was of incredible beauty, uh, exceptional beauty, and she caused a stir among the men of the village, and as a result, she was pursued outside of the village, maybe even by a mob of women, and they drowned her. That's what happened. There is a and let her body float downstream in the river. There is therefore a murder and a tomb, which then was dressed up into a myth. Uh, There is another one where you have the story again of a god who came down and who lived among men and taught them to do one particular craft. I don't remember what it was, but one day he decided to leave them and he went up on the hill and they all came after him trying to tell him not to leave, but he then reached the end of the hill and took off and flew back to to the stars. Again, it sounds like a very beautiful and noble myth. The reality of the matter is probably that that particular particular, uh, craft that the village was learning at the time was causing uh, severe violence due to probably unregulated competition among everybody, everybody wanting on the goods and no one was really able to get it. And the one who brought it, therefore, was pursued by a lynching mob and they got to the top of the hill and he didn't fly down to the stars he, he didn't fly up to the stars, he flew down to his death. They killed him. A similar story exists in the Gospel of St. Matthew when Jesus goes to his village and there he doesn't do any miracles and they feel very upset with him because why is it that he does these miracles elsewhere and not with us? Are we beneath him? And there is, again, a mob that is forming. Why? Because he's threatening to split the people of the village into two. Those who support him and those who don't, and that could then turn really ugly. Instead, the village bands together and they push him all the way up to a hill, intent on pushing him down, but then he walks away. He walks away from their midst. You can see, therefore, how this uh, this structure of violence is very well described in the process that Jihad put together. And um, there is a second book I might point out to you, and it's called The Violence and the Sacred, in which he basically presents this contagion of the mimetic desire. And now we come to the last piece, uh, which has been expanded in his masterpiece, called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, a uh, quotation from the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew particularly. Uh, where the Lord said that he will reveal things hidden since the foundation of the world. And here, therefore, we see the culmination of the whole process that I have described to you so far. Uh, and here are some excerpts from all of this. Uh, again, I am, I am contracting about 2,000 pages of written, uh, written word into, into this one-hour talk. I, can, uh, I cannot do justice to the whole process, so you're encouraged to um, seek uh, to, to do further reading on your own. One thing that is important, therefore, is that um, the purpose of archaic religion is the prevention of the return of the mimetic violence. The purpose of archaic religion is the prevention uh, to the return of the mimetic violence. In other words, the reason why these uh, these sort of be, um, behavior were put in place with sacrificial sacrificial victim was to prevent the return of the violence that threatens the entire society. In order to perpetuate the prevailing order, it is necessary to reenact the saving ritual by substituting another victim instead of the first that is obviously gone. And according to to Girard, this is the first time in human evolution that one thing stood for another. So this is when a man symbolizes another because of the fact that this victim is really symbolizing an initial victim. 
And um, as, a, as a result of all of this, a byproduct is that hunting was primarily sacrificial. The reason why men went out hunting was also so that they can actually offer sacrifice. And domestication follows from an oversupply or overabundance of potential victims. Now, whether this is true or not, um, I mean, it's an interesting thought. I don't know if it's true or not. It would require more research. But you can see how this whole theory unifies many behavior that seem to be disparate and disconnected into a connecting whole. So it's a very powerful theory. And we can see that this behavior, as I have already described to you, is present in the Gospels. Because the Gospels present themselves ostensibly as a typical mythical account with the victim God, with the victim God lynched by a unanimous crowd, an event that is then commemorated by Christians through ritual sacrifice, symbolic in this case, in the Eucharist. This is particularly true of the Catholic and Orthodox churches, where we commemorate, repeat the same sacrifice week after week. Why? Because this is how, if you were to follow the theory, this is how we essentially maintain the peace, by keeping focus only one victim. But the parallel, therefore, between the behavior in the, in the Christian civilization and other mythologies is perfect, except one detail. The truth of the innocence of the victim is proclaimed by the text and the writer. And that is astounding. Only in the Gospels and only in the Bible, and particularly in the story of Cain and Abel, will you see the narrator take the side of the victim, not the victimizer. If you read these other myths, as I pointed out to you earlier, the myth is couched to co as a cover-up of the initial murder. Therefore, the narrator, the one who conceives of the myth the first time, the one who retells the myth the first time, is telling it from the point of view of the, of the, vic uh, the, the victorious mob not the point of view of the victim. The difference of the Gospels and the story of Cain and Abel is that it is told from the point of view of the victim. That is utterly unique in the annals of all mytholo mythological writings across the human landscape. And that's pre really one of the fundamental reasons which got Jihad to convert and become a Christian when he saw that this was absolutely unique in the scripture and could not find anywhere else. He knew that something else was, was at work here. It was not the work of a human genius. Because Sophocles is definitely a literary genius, equal to Shakespeare. And yet, even Sophocles did not have the intuition to see that Oedipus was innocent. He actually caved in and allowed Oedipus to, to pluck his eyes out and then bring peace back. He caved into the sacrificial mechanism instead of seeing that um, Oedipus was innocent. If you compare that story to the book of Job, something that Girard does, and he does it with great mastery, you will see that in the book of Job you have very, something very similar to what happens with Sophocles, with Oedipus. Presumably, we know that Job was a rich man and he had children and a family and presumably he had a lot of wealth. So when his wealth crumbled, he wasn't the only one affected. A whole community was affected. Hence, the community was in crisis. And the community is looking for somebody to lynch. And who do we lynch when the rich cr crumbles and the poor suffer? The rich. We go after them. And so the whole book of Job is this dialogue between these three supposed friends of Job and Job. They're coming there and to get him to, they want to wring a confession from him that he's guilty somehow, that because of his sins, because of what he's done, that has happened. Because until he confesses this, he cannot be the sacrificial victim, which is what they need in order to, to bring back the peace. And the interesting thing is that the narrator of the story takes on the position that Job is innocent. Unlike the case of Sophocles, which at the end of the story, concludes quite irrationally that the relationship that uh, uh, Oedipus, had, Oedipus had with his mother was the reason why the plague hit the city. Uh, so you can see the genius of the writers in scripture, and even though there were different writers, say between the narrator of the book of Cain and Abel, of the book of Genesis, and the narrator of Job, they keep, and uh, the, you know, St. Matthew and, and St. Luke and the other narrators of the Gospels, they keep a, cons a consistent view that the victims are innocent and that the whole sacrificial process is a sham. And that happened 
precisely because Jesus was the most and perfect innocent victim. In his case, there was no way you could impute to him these things that they charged him with. And as a result of that, the whole mechanism of the sacrificial victim broke. Now, as a consequence to all of this, the fact that Christianity entered the world, the, the fact that Christ came and he was the most innocent victim, he effectively broke or opened our eyes to the murder behind the myth. He showed us that when we say that uh, these people were, were guilty, most often than not, they were not, they were innocent, they were a victim of the majority, say, or the mob, who decided to accuse them of, of this crime. And then you might think that if the Christianity was able to break this mechanism, then it must follow that it would die away. In other words, we would have fewer sacrificial victims uh, throughout time. But, as a, but in fact, it's quite the opposite that happens. The number of sacrificial victims grew. Why? Because the world resists, and because the world is also under the influence of Satan. And as, but the world needs more and more victims in order to be able to try and restore the sacrificial order. Um, Girard points out that before Christianity there was no such thing as a holocaust you did not have mass murders and in a sacrificial sense now you might argue that the Incas did just that, they sacrificed a lot of people and that may be the case but generally speaking you will not find across the landscape of human history uh, people sacrificing other people in a um, uh, in, in, you know, in the thousands I do not mean by that that you don't have wars where you know, population were completely eradicated. It's a completely different issue. I'm talking about the sacrificial mechanism requiring thousands of peoples being accused of a murder, say a whole people. Even when um, Babylon invaded uh, Jerusalem, even when the uh, Romans invaded, they never accused one population of the woes of the entire empire until the coming of Christianity. Why? Because then Christ broke that mechanism and the Christian conscience started to seep through the world and the world was imbibed by it and then suddenly one victim wasn't enough. You needed more. You needed more. It's like you need more noise to cover up your conscience. And that's why you have, for instance, the Holocaust of the Second World War. And that's why you have today the Holocaust with the abortion. And that's why the whole attempt by pro-lifers to woo away uh, pro-choice from abortion by showing them pictures of dead babies will never work. Because the babies are the problem. They have been turned into the enemy that must be sacrificed. A woman is pregnant, and as a result, she stands to lose her job, or she, she can't go to university. She, uh, she cannot, uh, there's a crisis between her and her boyfriend. He doesn't want the baby. Uh, suddenly, her life now is in a complete mess. What does she do? She has an abortion. As soon as she has an abortion, everything goes back to normal. Therefore, it was the baby that was the problem. By getting rid of him, by getting rid of this, of this of, 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 by sacrificing him, she brings back peace to her entire social network. And so, whether and then the fact that you show them these dead babies will, will not make any difference because the sacrificial victim requires these babies for their social order to be restored. You see, they care more about the social order than they care about the babies. And the only way you can really get to the heart of the matter is by showing them alternate ways to preserve the social order without having to sacrifice the baby. That's what the hard work uh, is. So now, we've seen overall how the mimetic desire, starting with three simple concepts of subject, object, and the mediator, becomes a problem when it is mixed in with violence because of scarcity of the object or because of the exceptional characteristics of the mediator that no one else can have which leads, therefore, a crowd to behave as a mob, and then the uh, competition between th those who desi desire the same thing can grow to such height that it can induce them to acts of violence amongst our, each other, which then uh, threatens the entire society. And the way to restore the order, therefore, is to channel this violence uh, against one person, which would be a sacrificial victim somebody different, somebody that does things differently. Once this person is sacrificed, peace is restored, and the dead victim is then imbued with powers they never had in the first place. Then the sacrificial system is put in place to maintain the order, and a set of taboos are also put in place to prevent violence from igniting again. 
obviously an imperfect mechanism, but that was the coping mechanism that humanity used until the coming of Christ. And fundamentally, the heart of the whole matter is that we say that the um, victim, therefore, is guilty. Compare now, if you will, the story of Romus and Romulus, or Romus and Remus, to Cain and Abel. Uh, Romus and Remus are called to be the founders of Rome. They were twin brothers. Cain and Abel were also twin brothers. Romus and Remus were going to found a civilization. Cain ended up founding a civilization, as we're going to see next week, with all the cities that were built, etc., etc. Um, Cain and, and Romus and Remus were competing to see who's going to be the mediator, the one who act as the primary role. And it looked like, in the case of Cain and Abel, we have something similar, although different. I'll get back to it in a minute. So, in the case of Romus and Remus, it was agreed that the question about where the city should be built, because both Romus and Remus had picked a seven, a different hill of the seven hills of Rome, and uh, they tried to argue where they should build the city. So, this is the case where you have two contenders to occupy the unique role of the mediator, not... Uh, you cannot have both of them be mediator at the same time. Only one of them will be a mediator in trying to figure that out. So it was agreed that the question should be decided by augury. And each took his station on the top of his chosen hill. The night passed away, and as the day was dawning, Remus saw six vultures. But at sunrise, when these tidings were brought to Romulus, twelve vultures flew by him. Each claimed the augury in his own favor, so there's a stalemate. No one is backing, uh, backing away. But most of the shepherds decided for Romulus. And Remus was therefore obliged to yield. So now, it looked like the augury broke the tie. And now we have the mediator, which is, in this case, Romulus. Romulus now proceeded to mark out the pomerium of his city, meaning the perimeter, the, uh, perimeter of his city. Remus, who still resented the wrong he had suffered, leapt over it in scorn. So you can see that his action uh, is um, sort of innocuous. He just leapt over it. But it's not really innocuous because he's challenging the role of the mediator. If he leaps over it in scorn, he's scorning not the object, the perimeter, as we saw before. The perimeter is important. It's not important in itself. It's just a line in the ground. What is important is that the mediator has made that perimeter. Therefore, the mediator imbued the perimeter with importance. By scorning the perimeter, really, uh, uh, Remus was scorning the mediator himself, Romulus. And Romulus could not allow that to happen, because this would mean that his position as mediator, as leader, if you will, as the one to imitate, was threatened. And so, to remove the threat, he kills his brother. That's what he did. Now, consider what happens to Cain. So, this is something that is never really explicitly stated in, in the scripture about Cain and Abel. Why did Cain offer sacrifice to God? And we know there was a lame sacrifice to begin with. But why did we offer a sacrifice? He didn't offer a sacrifice to God because he really wanted God's love and care. He offered a sacrifice to God because he was after one thing, and one thing that he considered to be his due, the blessing of the firstborn. Essentially, it, Cain wanted to take on the position of his father. He wanted to be the king. And so he went and offered the sacrifice so that he could get the ascent from God that he would be the king. Now, God did not accept, did not receive a sacrifice. And we know from different parts of scripture that typically when God accepted the sacrifice, fire would come down from heaven and devour the sacrifice. Well, that is important because this would be a physical manifestation of God's will. Well, in that case, it didn't come from heaven, therefore he didn't accept the sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that Cain is not the leader. Now, to make matters worse, Abel comes along and he offers a sacrifice. Now, it could be that Abel's personal intention are really nothing more than to praise God. He's not interested to be the king. He's not trying to take his brother's uh, position. He's, he has no interest in any of this. He is innocent. He only wants to praise God. But it doesn't matter. The intentions of the victim, from the point of view of the victimizer, do not matter. They will be replaced by the right story afterwards. All that Cain sees in in uh, Abel is a contender, somebody who is trying to take what is rightfully his. And to make matter worse, Abel's sacrifice is received. So, 
in the eyes of Cain, and perhaps the eyes of others, it indicates that Abel is to be the king, not Cain. And now you understand why Cain was so angry, and why Cain killed his brother. He didn't kill his brother because sacrifice was accepted. He didn't kill it for the object, the sacrifice. He killed it for the value imbued in the object, which would have indicated who is the mediator, who is to play the model, the role model, the king. And he saw his, his brother as a threat, just as Romus saw Remus as a, th- a threat and killed him, a threat to his own authority. That's why he killed him. And now you understand a little bit better the irony in the statement when God asks him, where is your brother? And he answers back, why am I my brother's keeper? Effectively, the king is, the, is his brother's keeper. The king is supposed to look after everyone. But he's basically saying to God, well, you didn't give me that position. That's what I wanted to be. You wouldn't let me be. So why are you coming to me? Why are you asking me? I'm not, his, I'm not the brother's keeper. He's, a fa- you know, he's being despondent, obviously. But that explains why he killed him. He was taken by that very strong desire he had for the object. What is the object? To be a king. Like who? Like Adam. He wanted to imitate his father. The father is the model in this role. In, 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 he's the model in this particular case. But even so, God is the ultimate model. And ironically, trying to imitate God, he ends up killing his brother. That's what he did. So, Compare that to Romus and Remus. Both cases, we have two twin brothers. Both are engaged in mimetic behavior. One is trying to do what the other does. One brother kills the other in both cases. The surviving brother becomes the founder of a great civilization in both cases. What is the difference? The difference is that in the case of Romus and Remus, the narrator, the one telling the story, the one making up the myth, will refer to Romus as the founder, the great founder of Rome. Whereas, the narrator of scripture, in chapter 4, calls Cain a murderer. That is the fundamental difference. It's a question of moral intent. It's a question of seeing it for what it is and calling it for what it is. Scripture, in a very lucid way, calls the act of Cain a murder. There is no attempt to disguise it and to glorify it. It is what it is. It's a murder. And now you understand why you know, Cain was motivated to kill Abel. What motivated him to do that in the first place is this whole dynamic of mimetic desire where the father played the role of the model and he wanted to imitate him very, very strongly and he ended up murdering his brother. Why? Because he just could not detach himself from his father. You see... He has his father in his eyes, and all he wanted to do is be exactly like his father. But in this case, the object was the crown, if you will, or the authority. That's what he was after. Right? In other cases, you would have the same intensity of mimetic desire between the son and the father, but there is no object, there's just the father. And you end up in a case of homosexuality. And that's why you'd see homosexuals react with such violence to anyone who criticizes their ways of living because fundamentally their desire is born out of this intense identification role of the father and anything that threatens them or tells them that they were not supposed to do what they're doing is not just talking about morality, it's talking about their own sense of existence. And that's why you have such a strong reaction uh, coming from them. So, you could see that after three lectures, we're still in chapter four, but I hope that you see by now there, there is a fundamental reason why. This chapter is extremely powerful, extremely rich. It is very, very um, contemporary text. It speaks to us today about our own lives and the way we, in our own way, can fall prey to, these, uh, to the violent sides of desire. And we have to control ourselves. You notice that Jesus gave us the solution because when he came, he told us, imitate me. He set himself up as the mediator, as the one to imitate. But, unlike all of us, Jesus is the perfectly innocent victim. We cannot accuse him of anything. Not only that, Jesus said two things. I will allow you to imitate me, and when you do so, I will allow you to do things greater than I did. In other words, him being the mediator is never in a a role of competition with us. He wants us to do greater things than He did. And not only that, but He willingly and joyfully gives us the means to achieve that, which is Himself. 
He allows us to eat Him in the Eucharist so that we can do things greater than He did. And in doing so, He completely breaks away the whole cycle of violence around the mimetic behavior and replace it with a cycle of grace or a cycle of peace by effectively creating for us a mode of operation where we have a mediator that we can imitate, who will never be threatened by us and who will never threaten us. A mediator that we can, in a sense on earth, exceed by and, and knowing that he, he rejoices when he sees us doing these great things and a mediator with whom we can be united in heaven forever and in love. Indeed, only a God could have conceived of such a thing. Take the broken... Um, cycle of violence that resulted from original sin, turn it on its head into a cycle of grace that lead us to life in heaven with Him forever. This is our destiny, this is who we are, and this is why this text is so important and we need to study it. So I hope that you will take this into your prayer time, you will spend time in prayer to know and love and serve God on earth every day of your life, and that you will grow in the intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ so you can imitate Him and do great things in His name. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.